All right, I don't know how you normally do here, but if you would please stand for the reading of God's word. I'll be reading from Matthew chapter 10, verses 16 through 33. These are the words of God. Jesus speaking. Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues, and you'll be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. Brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father, his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house visible, how much more will they malign those of his household? So have no fear of them, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be made known. What I tell you in the dark, they in the light. And what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my father who is in heaven. These are the words of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we open and study your word today, we ask that you use it to instruct us, convict us, strengthen us, and encourage us. Please bless this time as we seek to grow in our understanding of who you are and who we are to be as your children. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. So it's a pleasure to be back with you all this morning. It has been a couple of years since um, my family and I have been here, and uh, it's great to see so many familiar faces, old friends, and a lot of new faces. So if I had a chance to meet you, please come up and introduce yourself. I love to meet all the new folks. Um, my name is Eric Lecce. I'm an elder at Trinity Church. My wife, Julie, is here with three of our four boys, and um, I'm just excited to be asked to come. And, I, well, as I was saying, after Mike texted me three times, I finally responded. Then I was excited. Um, but um, I want you to leave this morning encouraged. And, and you might smile and say, well, that sounds nice. You know, I like a nice big warm hug. I, I want to leave feeling encouraged. Um, but being married to a grammar school teacher, um, I wanted us to take a look at the word encourage first. I had to look at it a little more closely. And there's a Latin prefix that being the E-N, N. Um, and so, from my research, because I don't know this, um, it's used to form verbs from nouns and adjectives with a sense of to put in or on, or to cause to be, or to make into. So, to encourage is to cause to be full of courage. It's not just supposed to feel good or feel nice, but it's to be put on courage. So, I want you to be encouraged for the week ahead. I want you to have courage for what God has for you for this week. So, why is that important? Well, a lot of what I just read from Matthew 10, a few little notes. Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Well, that's going to take courage. Children will rise up against parents. Wow, that takes courage. 
Whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father in heaven. It takes courage to walk out in the midst of this world and stand for Christ. So courage is necessary for the road ahead, for the week ahead. So I want to go through just a, a bunch of things what the Bible says, some examples from Scripture, um, and I want us to leave full of courage for the week ahead. Some people think of the Bible as just a list of do's and don'ts, and I think we can all acknowledge that it's a lot more than that. Um, but if I pressed you and said, okay, come up with a list of do's and don'ts, you could come up with a few, right? Don't lie, don't steal, love your enemies, don't murder, uh, do unto others as you would have them do to you, love your neighbors yourself, right? All the, all the great things that we're supposed to pull from Scripture, and all certainly applicable, and, um, but the interesting thing is not all of them, not, those aren't mentioned with as much frequency as one other, do not, and that's do not be afraid, do not be afraid appears in at least one translation over 70 times. And that doesn't include all the variations like fear not, um, do not fear, and the like. So clearly God knew that we as people were prone to being afraid, prone to fear, and wanted to make sure we knew that was not how we're supposed to live. So I want to set some groundwork on being afraid first and then cover, um, cover some quick points about fear versus fear or being afraid of something slash someone versus fearing God. So, first of all, the Bible isn't saying there's nothing scary, so you don't need to be scared. So, let's be real, there's a lot of scary things out there in the world. Um, what initially comes to mind for me is all those pictures of the things that can kill you in Australia, right? You see, it's like there's these giant bugs and these other, like, those things, you should be scared of those. Um, no, you shouldn't be scared, right? They are scary, but that doesn't mean we have to be scared of them. The Bible gives us uh, two different commands using the, what is translated in our, in our Bibles as fear, right? And so uh, sometimes people's confusion comes because those words are used in the context of being afraid, as well as a type of fear that means an intimidating feeling of reverence or awe, right? So a couple examples. Isaiah 43, 5. Fear not, for I am with you. I will bring your descendants from the east and gather you from the west. And so that, don't be afraid, right? Fear not, for I am with you. Don't be afraid. Um, Job twenty twenty eight, And unto man he said, Behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom, and to depart from evil is understanding. Here the word, here the word means reverence. So reverent fear, right? To be in awesome wonder at. Fear God in that way. And then, of course, in Matthew 10, 28, which I just read, Jesus uses both in the same sentence. And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. So you get that. Don't be afraid of those who can only um, kill the body, but fear God. Have a, have a holy fear, a reverent awe, like of someone who can actually um, take away, actually, who can actually, if you don't follow Jesus, aren't in God's family, will be eternally separated um, from him. So fear versus fear. So I think, I think that was view for most people. Um, secondly, the second point on just this groundwork is do not be afraid in the Bible is more often than not followed by an action that God is or will take, is taking or will take. A few examples of that. Exodus 14, 13, do not be afraid. Stand firm and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. Deuteronomy 3, 22, do not be afraid of them. The Lord your God himself will fight for you. Joshua 10.8, do not be afraid of them. I have given them into your hand. Not one of them will be able to withstand you. Luke 12.32, do not be afraid, 
little flock, for your father has pleased to give you the kingdom. So do not be afraid because God's working. God is doing something, so there's nothing to be afraid of. And God has provided a lot of examples in Scripture, and we're going to go through a bunch this morning, of people who were in scary situations and in flesh were afraid, and God did not want them to be afraid because he's at work. He's saying, I've got this. You just don't be afraid. Third, at least ten times, do not be afraid is followed by do not be discouraged. And so being afraid and being discouraged are related. And so we talked about encourage, right, to build up courage. Well, discourage, dis is a Latin prefix meaning apart or away, having a negative or reversing force. Some English examples of other words, right, disability, disaffirm, disbelief, discontent, right, it gives the word the opposite meaning. So discouraged is just the opposite of courage. So don't be afraid and discouraged. Don't be afraid and have no courage. So we need to be encouraged, filled with courage. Why do we need to be filled with courage? Because the Lord is in us and with us. 1 John 4, 4. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. He who is in us is greater than he who is in the world. So we are to be encouraged. End of sermon. <laughs> no. um, but that's what, that's what God does for us. God gives us... Um, God gives us these promises, but then he doesn't, he doesn't just say, okay, have courage. He gives us all these examples, and that's what I want to do. He's, he's preserved for us these stories in Scripture of people that are just like us and have fear in a variety of different situations, and God says, don't be afraid, and here's why. And it, gives us, it shows us how to look to God. It shows us how to think about these situations. Um, when, when a lot of these people were facing unbelievable opposition— in crazy situations, scary situations, and they're all very familiar stories. And so um, I, was, I was telling Joel, I started looking at this um, this summer. We do a summer study for fifth through eighth graders, and I was like, you know, what? I, I, I want to encourage this group. I want to give this group courage as, you know, a lot of them headed back to school. There's a lot of stuff swirling around in our culture. Wanna give, and then I was thinking as I was studying, I need this. We all need this. As we head into fall as, as work situations are changing and folks are heading back to school and just the general chaos of our world, we need courage to face it all. So let's uh, jump in. So the first uh, one I want to look at is Joshua. And Joshua, his thing was having courage in the big task. So I'm going to be reading from a bunch of different places in, in Scripture this morning. Um, and you can uh, turn there if you want. I will... Um, give you direction in that way. Uh, this is from the beginning of Joshua, the opening of the book. And so just remember the setting, the opening of Joshua, right after the end of Deuteronomy, Moses leads the Israelites out of Egypt to the promised land, but um, people are still outside of the promised land at the opening of the book. And, you know, the generation that came out of Egypt had fallen under God's judgment because of their rebellion in the wilderness. And this is the context as Joshua opens. So Joshua one uh, one. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now, therefore, rise, go over this Jordan, you and all this people, into the land that I'm giving to them, to the people of Israel. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given to you, just as I promised to Moses. 
from the wilderness and this Lebanon as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites to the great sea, for the going down of the sun shall be your territory. No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life, just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. Be strong and courageous, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Have not I commanded you, be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened, and do not be afraid, dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. That last verse, verse 9, my, my absolute favorite verse in the Bible. I remember memorizing as a kid, except I memorized it in the King James, so it has a bunch of big funny words in there. Um, have not I commanded you, be strong and courageous. Don't be afraid. Joshua was given an enormous task. He basically gets handed a rebellious people that gave trouble to Moses, so much trouble that the generation that came out of the land wasn't able to enter the promised land. So God opens this chapter of Joshua's life with a task. Go take the land, a command, be strong and full of courage, and a promise. I will never leave you or forsake you. The Lord your God is with you wherever you go. And then verse 9 is that summary. God's encapsulating all of that. Have not I commanded you, be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened, do not be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. We need to hear that too, right? That's, so Joshua had a big task in front of them, and God told him this. Whatever our task is, God wants us to hear those same things. He actually, there's another quick example I just want to give, because I, I love this. It, it's one verse in Acts. Um, you don't have to turn there. Paul gets arrested in Jerusalem in Acts chapter 21. He gives testimony to the people in chapter 22. The Jews want to kill him. The Romans don't know what to do with him. They're going to beat the truth out of him, but then he says he's a Roman citizen, and so they're all conflicted. Um, so then he tries a little diversion. He tries to pit the Pharisees against the Sadducees, gets them fighting, and that gets dangerous too. Verse 10 actually says, And when the dissension became violent, the tribune, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down, take him away from among them by force, and bring him into the barracks. So Paul's in jail. Not sure what's going to happen. The Romans aren't happy. The Jewish leaders aren't happy. And then chapter 23, verse 11. The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. So just like God is, God told Joshua, take courage, Jesus tells Paul, take courage. Paul's in jail. Jesus shows up. Talk about the Lord being with you wherever you go. You're in a tough spot. You know there's several potential bad outcomes and and you pray, and boom, Jesus shows up. And Jesus says, take courage. Be encouraged. Have courage. And why? Because he had a big tattoo. Just like you testified to me here in Jerusalem, now go 1,500 miles across the Mediterranean to Rome, the capital empire, and do the same thing. Going to need courage. You did a great job. Do it again. And that's the command to us, right? No matter what it is, we're, not, we're probably not going to be you know, testifying to our faith in front of the emperor We're probably not going to be leading a rebellious people into a promised land. Not on my plan for the week. But we are to be courageous in what God has for us. God is with us. God is with Joshua. God is with Paul. God is with us. And so we see the promise of Joshua 
1.9, fulfilled in the Holy Spirit, right? When you're in Christ, God gives you the Holy Spirit to dwell in you. Um, and that's why, that's why this frames everything we're going to talk about. All the, all the other lives we're going to look at in Scripture, it's the, that is the foundation. That has to be our foundation for thinking through anything that happens to us in our lives in much the same way it happened to these other folks. Raising kids, right? Huge task. Standing against the cultural chaos, big task. Living with a spouse, navigating the workplace, all these things, big tasks. And God says, I've given you the Holy Spirit. The Lord is with you. Be courageous. And next one, look at Esther. Esther had courage at a strategic moment. The more I read Esther, the more I just love the details of this story. Like if you just read it carefully, there's so many vivid details, vivid scenes in there. Esther also needed courage for a big task. Right? The task was to save her people from complete genocide. But this is what I want you to picture. Esther is about 14 years old. She's an orphan, being raised by a cousin. She's a Jew in Persia and has been chosen by the king to be his queen. Uh, okay, like talk about just feeling small and isolated. Little does she know that the king has just been tricked into signing an order to have all the Jews killed. That's kind of the setting. Okay? So I just want to read a few verses from Esther chapter 4, starting in, in verse 1. When Mordecai learned all that had been done, Mordecai tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went out into the midst of the city, and he cried out with loud and bitter cry. He went up to the entrance of the king's gate, for no one was allowed to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. And in every province, wherever the king's command and his decree reached, there was great mourning among the Jews, with fasting and weeping and lamenting, and many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. When Esther's young women and her eunuchs came and told her the queen was deeply distressed, she sent garments to clothe Mordecai so that he might take off his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Then Esther called for Hadath, one of the king's eunuchs who had been appointed to attend her, and ordered him to go to Mordecai to learn what this was and why it was. Hadath went to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate, and Mordecai told him all that had happened to him and the exact sum of money that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasuries for the destruction of the Jews. Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for their destruction, that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her, and command her to go to the king to beg his favor and plead with him on behalf of her people. And Hathach went and told Esther what Mordecai had said. Then Esther spoke to Hathach and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, All the king's servants and all the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death, except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, I have not been called to come into the king these 30 days. And they told Mordecai what Esther had said. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Wow. I mean, wow. She finds out her people are going to be exterminated. She can't go talk to the king because if he doesn't hold out the scepter, it means death. And Mordecai basically says, that's just an excuse. Ouch. The book of Esther, it's interesting, doesn't directly mention God, right? But in this question, Mordecai really alludes to divine sovereignty. 
The principle is that God places people in particular places at particular times to accomplish his specific plans. And the book of Esther clearly reveals God at work. The orchestration, the amazing reversals, poetic justice that lead to the deliverance of the Jews all proclaim the sovereignty of God. In Esther's story, the Lord redeems his people through the faith and courage of one strategically placed woman and her cousin at a specific time. But here are the two things I want you to notice about Esther's situation this morning. First, she wasn't loud about her faith. She wasn't in anyone's face about it. She didn't go into the king the first time and say, oh, by the way, I'm Jewish. Twice in chapter 2, we're told she didn't tell anyone where she was from. Verse 10 says, Esther had not made known her people or kindred, for Mordecai commanded her not to make it known. And then verse 20, Esther had not made known her kindred or her people as Mordecai commanded her, for Esther obeyed Mordecai just as when she was brought up by him. This, this sounds strange to us. Like, wait, you're not supposed to go and proclaim who you are? No, that's an amazing thing. But sometimes in God's plans, you don't do that. Was it sinful for her to not do that? There's no indication that it was. But here's what she was doing at the same time. This is interesting. Esther 2.15. Now Esther was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her. She was winning favor. So was she kind to people? Probably. Did she treat people well? Maybe. Maybe she was treating people the way she wanted to be treated. But she was winning them over by her actions, and then when the time came, she was ideally positioned to accomplish what God wanted her to accomplish. Because there did come a time, a time in God's strategic plan where he said, now, Esther, is your time. And she has a choice. She has a choice then. She can try to play it safe, and as Mordecai said, probably die anyway, or she can risk dying and live to say for people. She's probably thinking, I've been trying to be nice to everybody, even the king. He hasn't wanted to see me in 30 days. If he doesn't want to, doesn't hold out the scepter, I'm dead. I mean, can you imagine how scared a 14-year-old must be in that situation? But Mordecai says, who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for just such a time as this? How do you know this isn't exactly what God has planned for you? And that gave Esther courage. Esther tells Mordecai to gather the Jews and fast for three days. She'll do the same and then plans to go to the king. And an amazing phrase then, she says, and then if I perish, I perish. Wow. The courage to speak could mean death. Courage to trust, not knowing, not knowing that God is already working it all out, but believing that that's the case, right? If, if, you don't, if you don't live saturated in the belief that God has a plan for you, you come to that time and you won't have the courage, right? Because there will come a time. In God's time, he will, he will bring opportunities to you, opportunities to reach out a helping hand in the name of Jesus, to speak truth to someone, a hard truth to someone, to stand against an evil plot, or to resist a clear and present danger. And so the lesson from Esther is, when the time comes, be bold. Have courage. And with Esther say, if I perish, I perish. God knows we need courage. He knows we're not courageous all the time. Even so, it was interesting. I'd, I'd already done this, and then and then I was reading, and I, and I came across the story of Gideon. And I was like, Gideon, yeah, he's a warrior. Like he, God, 
God said, go fight the Midianites and 32,000 men. You know, it's not going to do. Whittle it down to 300. God wanted to prove that it wasn't the Israelites that triumphed, but it was he that was. So 32,000 men gets them down to 300 for Gideon. But God knows that Gideon is just a man, right? And looking at 300 men, he's going to go, uh, God, to just 300. And the camp of the Midianites is kind of big. And so God encouraged Gideon. God gave Gideon courage. And it, it says in Judges 7, 9, that same night the Lord said to him, Arise, go down against the camp, for I have given it into your hand. But if you're afraid, go down to the camp with your servant, and you shall hear what they say, and afterward your hand shall be strengthened to go down against the camp. It wasn't just that Gideon was just this super courageous you know, guy. God knows that we are that we have these weaknesses, that we're not always super courageous. And so God said, if you're afraid, go and do this. And Gideon did. <laughs> just, so Gideon was. He was afraid. And that encouraged him. God, that gave him courage. God knew that and gave him courage in that way. So God knows we need courage in all sorts of difficult, difficult situations, and he encourages his people. He did it for Gideon. He did it for Esther. He does it for us. So Joshua had courage in the face of a big task. Esther had courage in the face of a big task, but also at a strategic moment. Daniel has the courage to worship, to live his life before the face of God. Book of Daniel, beginning chapter 6. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read just the opening of uh, chapter 6. It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps to be throughout the whole kingdom, and over them three presidents, of whom Daniel was one, to whom these satraps should give account, so that the king might suffer no loss. Then this Daniel became distinguished above all the other presidents and satraps because an excellent spirit was in him, and the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. Then the presidents and satraps sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom, but they could find no ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful, and no error or fault was found in him. Then these men said, we shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. Then these presidents and satraps came by agreement to the king and said to him, O King Darius, live forever. All the presidents of the kingdom, the prefects and the satraps, the counselors and the governors are agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction that whoever makes petition to any god or any man for 30 days except to you, O king, shall be cast in the den of lions. Now, O king, establish the injunction and sign the documents so that it cannot be changed according to law, the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. Therefore, King Darius signed the document and the injunction. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. I'm not going to spend too much time on this one, but two quick takeaways. First, life is worship. You live your life, entire life, before God. Verse 4, again. Then the high officials and the satraps sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom, but they could find no ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful and no error or fault was found in him. It's not like Daniel lived one way when he was working his government job and another way when he went into his room to pray. I mean, Darius even knew this. Darius notes it later in verse 16 when he's throwing Daniel in the lion's den, he says, the king declares to Daniel, may your God, whom you serve continually, deliver you. Whom you serve continually. 
without interruption, constantly. That takes courage. It takes courage to live before the face of God, honestly, faithfully, in the public square and in private. Second takeaway from this, when the government tells you who you can worship, you obey God, not man. The enemy will do anything to stop us from worshiping the one true God. And standing up to the enemy takes courage. You might say, well, he can't stop us from believing in God. But if he can distract us from bowing the knee to him, that's a victory that he greatly enjoys. In Daniel, they said you can only pray to the king. Satan has a knack for knowing what will turn our eyes from God. Sometimes it's obvious like this. Sometimes it's a lot more subtle. And so we need to know the biblical truths to be able to combat that and then continue to pray for the wisdom, the determination, and the courage to say no. In verse 10, it's almost like Daniel knew that this prayer mandate was going to be signed, right? And he's waiting for it. When Daniel knew the document had been signed, right, he's like, okay, I know it's signed. I'm going to go pray now. But he's going to faithfully worship God just like he does all the time. And we need the courage of Daniel so that people say, we live a life of worship continually. Okay, next. And this one's probably obvious, but I just want to touch on Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They had courage in the face of death. So, Daniel chapter 3. And I said I was going to read chunks. I just, these, I know we read these, like we read these to our kids and their picture Bibles and everything, but for us to read them again, I just think, as adults, it's amazing. Because a lot of these stories, we know that story. Okay, great. We're, we're reformed. We spend our time in Romans, things like that. No, these are great. These are great stories, great things to read. So Daniel 3, uh, starting in verse 8. Therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. So first, maliciously. So they're intending to do harm. That's what malicious means. So they're intending to do harm. Maliciously accused the Jews. They declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, Harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now, if you're ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, to fall down and worship the image that I have made, well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Government mandating worship again. King calls them in because, like Daniel, they're faithful in their worship, and we're disregarding an immoral mandate. King questions them, and then they answer. And the king, I, their response to the king, right? This is Nebuchadnezzar, king. Oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. And he's thinking, oh, yes, you do. I'm the king. 
But then they do answer. Our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace. But if he doesn't, if God chooses another path, if God's plan, which isn't our plan, is different, we're still not going to serve your gods or worship the golden image that you've set up. King, we know you can snuff out our lives in an instant. We also know our God saves. We don't know what his purposes are, but we do know we're not going to worship your idol. Those two guys could have just gone along with the crowds. They could have faded into the background. Maybe no one would have been the wider. But like Daniel, they knew they lived their entire life before the face of God. Safety is an idol. Don't make waves. Go along with the crowd. That takes zero courage. That's not the courage we're commanded to have. Courage is taking a stand even when the risk is really high. Courage is not bowing down to the idols of the world. David had similar courage when he was called before Saul in the Valley of Elah. So this is right before David confronts Goliath. Right, The armies of Israel lined up from the, across from the Philistines in 1 Samuel 17. And David says to Saul, let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. And Saul says to David, uh, you're not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you're but a youth. And he has been a man of war from his youth. And then David goes and recounts how he killed a bear and a lion um, when they came to attack his sheep. And then he says, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. So, but David, in the mind of Saul and the armies of Israel, all his brothers and everyone else he would talk to, their thinking was he's facing certain death, Right? Goliath even says to David, come to me and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. But David knew that his God was a God who delivers and a God who saves. There's a confidence with David and Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego because they know that God has saved, they know that God does save, and they know he can save. But even if he chooses not to, according to his perfect plan, God will be glorified. And they're not supposed to be afraid. They're supposed to be courageous. All right, next one. Man who had more failures than successes. Sometimes I feel that way. Samson. Samson was one of the judges of Israel, right? 20 years he judged Israel. In Judges 16, now the lords of the Philistines gathered to offer great sacrifice to Dagon, their God, and to rejoice they'd finally gotten Samson. They said, our God has given Samson, our enemy, into our hand. And when the people saw him, they praised their God. For they said, our God has given our enemy into our hand, the ravager of our country, who has killed many of us. And when their hearts were merry, they said, call Samson that he may entertain us. So they called Samson out of the prison, and he entertained them. They made him stand between the pillars. And Samson said to the young man who held him by the hand, let me feel the pillars on which the house rests, that I may lean against them. Now the house was full of men and women. All the lords of the Philistines were there. On the roof, there were about 3,000 men and women who looked on while Samson entertained. Then Samson called to the Lord and said, O Lord God, please remember me. Please strengthen me only this once, O God, that I may be avenged on the Philistines from my two eyes. And Samson grasped the two middle pillars on which the house rested, and he leaned his weight against them. His right hand on the one and his left hand on the other. And Samson said, Let me die with the Philistines. Then he bowed bowed with all of his strength, and the house fell upon the lords and upon all the people who were in it. So the dead whom he killed at his death were more than those who he'd killed during his life. 
when we think of Samson, we think of, well, we think of Thor, right? Just a guy. It's all about his strength, right? Great physical strength. Unfortunately, it's easier to be physically strong than it is to be morally strong. Samson found this to be true again and again throughout his life. And before Samson was born, right, an angel appears to his parents, clearly lays out the goal of Samson's life, the parents, right? And he gets set apart. No razor can, can touch the hair on his head. Um, as he grows up, his strength is legendary. Um, and like I said, he judges Israel for 20 years. But unfortunately, Samson's ability to lead was undermined by his immorality and his foolishness. He repeatedly consorted with prostitutes and other women to whom he was not married. It's, it's almost as if his physical strength came about by sucking all his moral strength away. So after years of repeated immoral foolishness, God had had enough. He knew that Samson would have to reap what he was sowing. I mean, as parents, how many times do we struggle with this, right? If, if children won't follow your wise advice and make good choices that have good consequences, eventually the child will learn the hard way that bad choices cause bad consequences. And so we come to Delilah in Samson's life, right? After much back and forth and lies, Samson tells her the secret of his strength. Um, Delilah promptly tells the Philistines the key to destroying him, right? They cut off his hair. When Samson first awakes, he did not realize he'd become weak. And in Judges 16.20, one of the, I, the scariest verses in the Bible. He did not know the Lord had left him. If we repeatedly treat the Lord with contempt by our immoral behavior, turning away from him, we can travel so far away that we don't realize that we're not even looking to him at all anymore. Right? Without the Lord that gave him the strength, Samson was doomed. The Philistine seized him, gouged out his eyes, and took him to prison. And it was only then that Samson found courage. And I was like, oh, he's this big, strong guy. He had courage his whole life. No, it was only then he had courage. And what was that courage? The courage to cry out to God. When he had lived a life that had, even though he was judging, that had constantly turned his back on God. That's when he had the courage. Forgive me. Forgive He says, forgive me for the spiritual blindness that caused me to turn away. He prayed to the Lord. This is the first time in all the stories of Samson that it says he prayed, that he called out to God. Samson called the Lord and said, oh, Lord God, please remember me. Now, it does say he's still motivated by revenge, right? They took my eyes, give me the strength. Not perfect, right? But crying out to God, crying out to God. Samson was willing, at, at this point, he's willing to sacrifice his own life for the good of God's people, right? For, to fulfill that purpose that the angel had told his parents before, right? Starting the downfall of the Philistines. And because of that, God gave him his strength back for one last moment. The final act of courage, it says, it gave him more success than his whole life. Right? Then, all that, then all of that physical strength he exhibited his whole life that was also marred by immorality and foolishness. Killed many more when he died than when he lived. And then the Bible lists Samson with the other great heroes of the faith, including Abraham and Moses, 
as someone whose life encourages us, as it says in Hebrews, to throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. Well, that sounds like Samson. So easily entangled him so that we can run with perseverance the race marked out for us. I mean, this Hebrews 11. I have it here. And I, I, what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell, it sounds like me, I have so many stories. Time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves. And all of these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us they should not be made perfect. And then, I mean, commended through their faith. And then Hebrews 12, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. That's what we're talking about this morning. These are, the, these are the witnesses. These are the witnesses to God's faithfulness, God's encouragement to these people. And so what are we to do? Lay aside every weight, every sin which things clings so closely and run the race of endurance, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. This is the courage that empowers us to ask God to forgive our sins. No matter how time, many times we fall away, no matter how stupid our sin is, gives us another chance to repent and turn away and say, God, I want to make a better choice. It's a courage that empowers us to sacrifice for God's people. Indeed, for the good of all people, even for our enemies. And it's a courage that empowers us to ask God to give us wisdom, no matter how many times we've been foolish in the past. And speaking of that, lest we walk away and go, okay, those are some great examples, but I, you know, I think I've got this. We come, to, we come to Matthew chapter 26. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. So this is after um, Jesus has his last supper with the disciples. Um, they go out to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus said to them, you will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I'm raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. So he's saying, he's saying okay, we just, we just had this, this meal together. You know, I've told you, you know, what's going to happen, and, but you're all going to fall away. Peter answered him, though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. And Jesus said to him, truly I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And Peter said to him, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same. Like, we got this. We're courageous guys. We're, fish, we're strong guys, right? We got this. We'll never fall away. And then, and then we get this little middle part of chapter 26. Jesus praying in Gethsemane. He gets arrested, appears before Caiaphas in the council. And then we get to verse 69. Now Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard, and a servant girl came up to him and said, You also were with Jesus the Galilean. But he denied it before them all, saying, I don't know what you mean. And when he went out to the entrance, another servant girl saw him, and she said to the bystanders, This man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again he denied it with an oath, I do not know the man. After a little while, the bystanders came and said to Peter, Certainly you too are one of them, for your accent betrays you. 
Then he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know the man. And immediately the rooster crowed. And Peter remembered the saying of Jesus, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. Matthew 10, which I read at the opening, Jesus speaking to his disciples as he's sending them out to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Beware of men, he says. I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. He said this to disciples like Peter. Peter, who then when questioned by a servant girl, immediately denies he ever knew Jesus at all. The disciples walk with Jesus for three years. They travel with him, eat with him, hear his teaching, see his miracles, make a lot of dumb comments, stumble, fall, listen, learn. They see him crucified. They spend three days as Jesus lays in the tomb, locked in a room, afraid. Then they get called to a mountain in Galilee, and they see the risen Christ. Then we have the great commission in the book of Matthew, and Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And then he also also appears in Luke, it says. He he appears to them and he he opened their minds. He says he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. And then his ascension in Acts 1. But you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And then turn off Pentecost, and the Holy Spirit comes. And divided tongues of fire appear to them and rest on each one of them. And they were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered, because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes, Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt, and all the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. Peter. I don't even know the man. Risen Christ. Go into all the world. Here's the Holy Spirit. Here's some languages. And then they went. They went. And everything that Jesus said would happen to them in Matthew 10 did happen to them. They were called before kings. They were hauled into courts. They were beaten. They were flogged. Some early church historians write that the apostles divided up the work of evangelizing. A book dating from the second century states that the disciples divided the countries among them in order that each one of them might preach in the region which fell to him and in the place to which the Lord had sent him. Tradition says Peter took Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, and Bithynia, basically modern Turkey. Thomas was assigned India. John was given Asia. 
other traditions tell us the apostles traveled far and wide preaching the gospel. And that preaching always got them into trouble. As clueless as they might seem at times in the New Testament, as afraid as Peter was in that garden, they had seen the risen Christ, received the Holy Spirit, and that had changed them completely. They were courageous because the Holy Spirit was with them. Over the next 65 years, through the reigns of about 12 Roman emperors, they took the gospel to the ends of the earth. Peter, among others, had the courage to pick himself up and have the faith to have courage. They had courage like Joshua, undertaking an enormous task, right? evangelizing the world. Small task. They had the courage at the right time, like Esther. Thomas might have doubted, but tradition says that he traveled to India and established a church there. They had courage like Daniel to live their lives, their entire lives, before the face of God, ignoring the dictates of secular rulers and the persecution that followed. And they had courage in the face of death. Paul tells us how he suffered for the faith, right? He says, I was whipped, beaten, stoned, shipwrecked, near starvation and danger from various people and places. The first to die was James, the brother of John. He was killed by the sword upon the order of King Herod, as we read in the book of Acts, right? Church tradition holds that Peter was crucified in Rome upside down. Andrew was bound to an X-shaped cross where he preached for three days until he died. Matthew, martyred in a distant city in Ethiopia. James, the son of Alphaeus, thrown from the pinnacle of the temple, then beaten to death with blacksmith's tools. Philip, hanged from a pillar in Hierapolis in Phrygia. Bartholomew, skinned alive. Thomas, run through with spears in India. Jude, killed with an axe in Syria. Matthias, stoned and then beheaded. Simon the Zealot, sawn in half. Sure, it's just church tradition. These men were changed and changed the world. Even though they were crucified, stoned, stabbed, dragged, skinned, burned, every last apostle of Jesus proclaimed his resurrection until his dying breath. Refusing to recant under pressure from the authorities, that's courage. Okay, three final thoughts. First, God created you for a purpose. Angel probably didn't appear to your parents like they did to Manoah and Samson's mom. Doesn't mean you don't have a purpose. God chose you, gave a purpose to you before you were born. For those of you that are really young, don't know what that purpose is yet. For those of you that have lived many years, God is working in you and through you. You've been created in the image of God. You have a purpose. And one of the most important things you can do is to seek God's guidance concerning what your mission is and how you can best fulfill it. Ephesians 5, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. God has a purpose for you. Second, we can't accomplish God's purposes for us in our own strength. Samson was a strong guy, could not accomplish God's purposes. The biblical message to us is we can confidently say with Paul, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Peter also reminds us that his divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. You have a purpose. You can't do it in your own strength. Where in your life do you need an encounter with God's strength? Maybe it's how you obey your parents. Maybe it's how you do in school. Maybe it's in the workplace. Maybe it's at home. Maybe it's with your spouse. Maybe you need strength to walk through a hardship or illness. Maybe you need 
God's strength to help step in a direction of a passion he's put in your heart. Wherever you're at, his strength is there for the taking. And then the third point is a warning. Because when you understand the purpose God has for you and you tap into the strength he wants to give you, there will also be people who come against you. So many of the folks that we talked about this morning faced opposition, strong opposition from kings and rulers and those who wanted to kill them. Samson was his own worst enemy. In much the same way as we seek to honor God and obey his will for our lives, we're going to face opposition. Jesus said, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. Chapter later, Jesus says, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Jesus' warning is not that we should avoid opposition. He's saying, take courage and face it, because I've beaten it. He didn't leave us on our own. Surely I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. So, seek after God's purpose for your life. Count on his strength to help you fulfill it. Rely on his wisdom and abiding presence to overcome obstacles and opposition. And with his help, you can walk in the supernatural strength of God. We're at war. The battle is real. Opposition is real. And God has said, have courage. Be strong and courageous. Ephesians 6, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance. And then tack on Second Corinthians 10. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and defy every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. And then go. Go out into your week. Go out into what God has called you to do. And hear the words of God. Have not I commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened. Do not be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have given us the histories of men and women who, like us, experienced situations where they were afraid, and you gave them courage. Use your word to encourage us, to build us up, to strengthen us for the tasks and the battles you have for us. Lord, we thank you for the Holy Spirit, that you have given us a helper to dwell in us and to speak to us words of courage. Thank you for calling us, for saving us, and for giving us Jesus as our example. Bless us as we go from here. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.